You guys can have a seat. How are you guys doing? Good. Great. Okay, open up your Bibles to Matthew 6. We are rounding third on our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to be in Matthew 6, 19. Uh, remember that we've been telling you uh, weekly that the Sermon on the Mount is like looking into a mirror. It's a lot like looking into a mirror. Jesus clearly wants to touch on every single part of our lives and what Jesus is doing here is, is no different. He's describing kingdom people, sincere. He's describing sincere kingdom people. And to be clear, uh, these are people who are already in love with Jesus, not people who are trying to earn love and affection from Jesus. It's a posture of people who are already secure in their love for, and their, uh, that Jesus has seized their heart already. They are in the kingdom. They are kingdom people. And so he's trying to show us what a sincere walk with Christ looks like. And as a new church, uh, for Bible Church, you know, sometimes we can find ourselves walking into this place trying to fit in, right? We try to find or figure out what the culture is at Fort Bible Church. When do I stand up? When do I sit down? What do I say? What do I wear? And um, that's backwards, right? We're not here to get the motions down to look more like each other. We're here to look at the mirror and say, where does, where does my Christ-likeness need to increase, those who are enraptured with Jesus will look like him over time as their father wills and shows them baby steps along the way, sincere baby steps along the way. In the scriptures, there are uh, 500 verses on, 500 something verses on prayer and faith. And there are 2,000 verses, 2,000 something verses on money. I think it's funny when I say the word money in church, like people start to fidget. It's like, like saying Voldemort. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know. Uh, that went better here than it did in the prayer thing. Uh, you know, it's, we get into here, it's like, okay, there's a pastor man talking about money again. But here's the reality. One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament talks about money. 25% of Jesus' teaching talks about financial resources. Imagine if every fourth Sunday you came in here, which... You know, you came here every fourth Sunday, and I just came in here and said, and I, we just talked about money every time. A lot of you guys would be gone. Like, be honest, right? Our culture tries to make this awkward and weird, and Jesus just hits it head on with three unbelievable warnings. Money is a part of your life. It's a part of our lives. And it's a topic that Jesus frequently taught on. So we're not going to skirt around it. We're a Bible church, so we're going to talk about what the Bible talks about. We're not going to skirt around it. We're going to faithfully walk through and see what Jesus is impressing upon you and I, me too, to see what our next baby steps look like as kingdom people. Does that sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, as we open your scriptures, may we hold them with reverence. You know us better than we know ourselves. You recognize what tunes our heart, what, what we give our heart away to, you know every hair in our head. You know what easily steals our heart, what blinds our eyes, and what enslaves our life. You know our proclivities, our dispositions. You know our upbringings. And would you, Lord, look into our lives, help us to peer into how we treat something that's trying to rob us, trying to rob us sometimes of the affections that we give to you. Would you convict me, Lord, as we open this text? Would you convict our church as we discover what our next baby steps look like towards you? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Born in the heart of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1908, uh, a businessman named Oscar was, uh, was born. And he was born, and as he grew up, he developed this suave charm. He was an entrepreneur and just an opportunist, really. He, in, in about 1930 hit, he just jumped into a journey that included so much gain and so much loss. Oscar sat back through most of his life and watched World War II unfold. And as he watched it unfold, he began to see opportunity as an entrepreneur. He began to see that there's some ways that this could be good for me and began to worship, some would say worship, this opportunity. And what he did was he capitalized on the prospect to amass a, a huge amount of wealth. As the war raged on and the atrocities of the Holocaust unfolded, Oscar, as an opportunist, saw a way to amass more wealth than he could ever dream of by hiring the cheapest labor possible at the time, and that is the Jewish people. What he would do is he would employ them to work in his factory uh, and produce kitchenware. And what happens when you hire the cheapest labor and sell something at the highest markup? Fortune. And fortune is what he did gather. He began to worship it. Well, in 1941, a baby step was brought to him. Uh, someone would say uh, something thumped him on the head. As the Nazis began to transport Jewish people out of the ghettos in Poland um, and what they coined as uh, liquidation, what the Nazis would do, they would, they would come into a ghetto and just systematically kill people that couldn't work. They would uh, take, take them out and, or they would deliver them to concentration camps. And, and in one fell swoop, one day, um, they attacked this uh, city called Pashlov. And in that moment, as Oscar witnessed this, uh, Oscar's definition of the word opportunity uh, took on a totally different meaning. He, and he, when he witnessed the unimaginable suffering and senseless destruction of innocent lives, he could no longer remain indifferent to the Jewish people. And in that night, during the night of that beginning of that liquidation, Oscar let all the Jewish workers that worked in his factory stay overnight in the factory to protect them from harm. As a member of the Nazi party, this is a bold and audacious move, right? He, he ha and from that day, he hatched this plan. I mean, he's like, he saw the goodness there and hatched this plan uh, to go forward, this daring plan to protect as many Jewish workers as he could. And he did that by using everything that motivated him initially, all of his money. He used all of his money to, that was used to oppress Jewish people to serve and love and protect them from harm. He used his status, his connections, and all of his funds for five years, employing Jewish people in his factories, thus sparing them from the cruel and dark, devastating uh, reality from concentration camps. Through bribery and negotiation, Oscar Schindler developed a list of 1,200 Jewish people that he was adamant on saving, shielding them from evil, offering them a glimmer of hope and, and sparing them from the cruel fate. Oscar realized that money was once the driving force of his ruthless ambition, now held a new purpose entirely. And, and one, one night, he realized that, that money had the power to save lives, that it cost something. 
great risk, personal sacrifice. He channeled all of his wealth and resources to protect those who had become family to him. For him, money, once a means to an end, became a tool of salvation, turning this person into a beacon of hope for the oppressed. Some of you guys are thinking, like, what the heck? You go full Schindler's List on me here? Like, I can see your faces. You're like, wow, Graham, that's pretty intense. Money is a really terrible God, but it's a really great tool. And what Jesus does is he, he gives us this harsh warning, a threefold warning that you and I are holding on to a very volatile substance, something that we all use, and it has the power to build and heal and, and restore, and it has a, the power to, to destroy and kill and rob like a two-sided coin, literally. We find ourselves in it with a, like a two-sided coin, like a physical two-sided coin. There are two spiritual sides to money, and each calls to you. Each holds before you a vision and promise. Each side doesn't just ask for the investment of your money, but for the allegiance of your heart. Oscar bowed to the altar of money, and it produced a certain lifestyle. It produced death. And when he realized that generosity and kindness and love, that he would sow those things into the world, he saw a very different world and pursued a very different set of actions. The battle between the two sides of money for all of us is something that wages in your heart for every person. It's a danger, but money's also a blessing, right? The question for you this morning is, what is it going to be for you? What's it for you? When the rubber hits the road of your life, everyday life, you're going to answer this question not just once. You'll have to answer it over and over and over again every single day. I don't care how young you are, how old you are. You're going to have to, have to ask yourself this question and answer it day after day as you're greeted with false promise and with truth. Each voice telling you to do with what's in your bank account. Like a knife, it's a great tool in the hands of a surgeon, but if you put it in the hands of a madman, it just takes. Jesus talked about money a lot because he knows it's so tied to your life. It's so tied to your life. And Jesus cares about your life. Money here in this text reveals what you worship and your soul, your heart is worth a much higher pursuit than anything that you see down here. It's, money's a great tool but it's a really bad God. But don't take my word for it. Let's see what Jesus says. So Matthew 6, 19, let's read through it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Like a poor relationship, 
Money's trying to take your desires and affections, sometimes subtly. It's like a, like a bad relationship. Sometimes that bad relationship can steal your heart. Jesus begins with this negative statement here in, in verse 19 on the, our treatment of money and says that we should not store up for ourselves treasures, which is a clear reference to clothes and uh, jewelry or metals because that's what moth and rust destroy. And, and now here it's, it's worth noting at the very beginning of this thing that money's not bad. So often we get in these sermons, we're like, money's, you know, the root of all evil. No, no, no. You guys know the love of money is the root of all evil, right? It's, it, money is neutral. Money's neutral. And so Jesus isn't saying money's bad. If you have money, you're bad. The scriptures are clear. Proverbs 6 is a great one. It says, consider the ant you sluggard that, that stores up for the summer. It, it works hard for what it, it earns and it stores up for the summer. So saving's not bad. Money's not bad. The key here is the sixth word in the text. Everybody look down and count. Six words. The sixth word in the text, and it's a very helpful tool for understanding where Jesus is going and where we're going this morning. And that is the word yourself. Everybody say yourself. Great job. Do not lay up for yourself. What Jesus is prohibiting in Matthew's gospel is the accumulation of goods for who? Yourself, great job. In Luke 12 through 15, he puts it, uh, 12, 15, he puts it this way. Watch out. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So where does your life exist? E each of us grew up with a different experience of money in this room. Very unlikely that you had the exact same experience with money. And this is where Jesus gets into an in a very personal way. He gets to you to explore your own heart. Because everybody wants to explore their own mess, right? You guys all want to do that, yeah? No? Okay, we're going to do it anyway. So some of you grew up in a, a scarcity mindset household, right? You, you grew up and it's like, we, no matter how much you had, you didn't have enough. And so the toil and the obsessive compulsive ambition began to take over. So others of you lived in an indulgent mindset where your family spent and spent and spent and literally didn't pay attention at all. And so finances just, you know, wasn't something you were trained on. Either way, the point is money's not a bad tool. It's just clear that money's trying to steal more of your affections and that you better believe that the enemy's going to use every part of any negative experience you've gone through to capitalize on stealing your heart. It's what he does best. He lies to you and capitalize on it. And so as we do a little triage today of your heart posture towards money, we can discover, and not a shaming way at all, there's no finger wagging here, but just to be clearly objective, how much of your heart, because this is a heart issue, how much of your heart is consumed by the love of things or materialism? And how much of your heart is consumed by the love of him? Put plainly, Jesus is saying that you have a heart and your heart is made to worship something and your heart is going to worship something. If we don't point our eyes and our hearts and our lives towards him, something's going to scooch what's, what should be there off the throne. Right? Our temptation in this text is to focus on what's down here, to worship and love and adore what's down here, what you see, what you can be mesmerized by, what exists in uh, robin's egg blue boxes one lady got it did you hear that laugh i live for that man that's what i live for just kidding 
or Clear Fork shopping centers, right? Or, or online ads. What, what is capturing the throne of your heart? And Jesus is saying finances reveal your deepest reality. They do. Where your affections lie. And honestly, in this world where more automatic and impulsive decisions happen financially, that only proves it more and more. Okay, put it clearly. Today, if we were to take all your prayers and all your bank statements and just Hansel and Gretel them, right? That breadcrumb trail would lead to a throne. What's on the throne? What's on the throne? Do we truly see, what do we truly see as valuable? And Jesus says, start with your wallet. Ben Stewart says, your, your credit card statement is the doctrinal statement of your life. Oh, man, heard that. What's real and what has value in your life? Is it what's down here? You want to get real personal, right? You, you want to get real personal? You want to know one of the things that tries to scooch Jesus off the throne of my life? Ready? I'll tell you. I'll, full disclosure. What would, what would my Hansel and Gretel breadcrumb trail lead you to? Felipe. Philippe was his name, actually. Some of you guys are like, did the, did the pastor just confess his love for a man named Philippe? No, no, no. <laughs> Philippe Armenta is a restauranteur in this town, and he owns Press Cafe, The Tavern, Maria's, F1 Smokehouse, what else? Le Margo, the new one down the street, French, bougie. Look, Claire will tell you. She looks at my bank statements. It says, Graham, 70% of the restaurants that you ate at this week were called local foods. Now, is being a foodie bad? Whoa, I really need more comfort than that. <laughs> Come on. Is, is being a foodie bad? No. no, God gave you food to enjoy, good wine and good drink. He gave you good food to eat, to roll up into worship of him. Yes, but look, being a foodie is not bad. But listen, if my bank account reflects more about the food that I eat than the God that I love, there's a problem. If your bank account reflects more of the coffee obsessions, oh, geez, <laughs> I got some eyebrows there. I'm, I'm so sorry, <laughs> but it's true. If, if your bank account reflects more about your coffee obsessions that you have than the God that you love, then something's trying to take the throne. What he's getting at is that your soul is, is far more precious than the trinkets that it tries to pursue here on earth, where you try to gain your satisfaction from. He warns us against focusing our ambitions, interests, and hopes on the things of this life. Really, in this Sermon on the Mount, like I said, Jesus is just looking for sincerity. You go listen to the last five sermons we had about the Sermon on the Mount. And, the Sermon on the Mount. and what he's calling you is to live a life that gets rid of the charade and starts the theater, right, of Christianity, and starts to see kingship over your life actually produce things in your life. But he starts with your soul and your heart, and I, you can't miss this. This is not a checklist thing. This is a heart thing. It's where is your heart being captured in worship. The value of your soul is so precious to him, and it should be directed to an endeavor that 
is equally as valuable. Okay, that's, that's that point. Because what's here is destroyed forever. I mean, seriously, what's here is gone, right? Look at the text. Moth and rust destroy here. Thieves steal here. You really think the FDIC has your paycheck down lockdown? Really? Okay, one of you is a banker. You know what that is? I don't care how many bank accounts of 250,000 plus you have. You think the FDIC can't be hacked into that you're not going to? Okay, listen, you, all your stuff can be steal, stolen. All of your stuff can, is gonna, can be destroyed. So what are you stockpiling and where? He's talking about really reinvesting your whole life into something that's eternal. The money that you have, the money where your money goes, shows your devotions. And money yearns. I mean, it, it hungers. It yearns for your devotion to take the mantle of divine deity in your life, which is why money's a good tool, but it's a bad God. It's a bad God. Which is why he moves into what money does to not just your treasures or your view of treasures, but also to your eyes. Money can blind you. It can blind. Notice the can there. It's that it will, but it can. Watch uh, as Jesus in his passions lifts your eyes. He lifts your eyes to where your focus and ambitions truly belong. He gets your gaze off of what's here and, and pulls your head up to what's up there towards selfless love, generosity, and mercy towards the realization of becoming a child of the Most High. It can blind your eyes. Verse 22, the eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Okay, so don't overcomplicate this. Try not to overcomplicate this. Jesus is very simply saying, if your eye is good, and you're in this room, you're going to take in light, and you're going to be able to see, and your body's going to navigate based off the light that it's taking in, and it'll move accordingly. If your eye is bad, if you have a bad eye, and it's not working, even though there's light in the room, you're only taking in darkness, because your eye's bad, right? And you're stumbling around. Your body is going to follow suit. How does this connect to greed, then? How does this connect to greed? Well, materialism has a profound way of, of blinding you and distorting the way that you see things. It has the power to, to take over the way that you see everything. And actually, what materialism do is it blinds you to materialism. See, greed is an eye sin because it distorts your view. It darkens your eye spiritually. Keller says, thinking about it this way, Jesus did not say to anybody, watch out. You might be committing adultery, right? He wouldn't say that because that didn't make sense. You don't just look up and be like, you're not my wife. What's going on? Okay. He, he, he's saying this is an ice and this is something you have to watch out for because you might be greedy. Uh, Wayne, you've been doing pastoral care for how many years? I mean, 40 years. Okay. In 40 years, I hope you answered the question the right way because... The, the sermon can't progress if you don't. Uh, for 40 years, you've had people come to your office, confess sin, lust, you know, adultery. They've just come and borne their soul to you. And 40 years, has one person come up to you and said, you know, Wayne, I just need to come to you. I really need to confess to you that I'm really greedy. Okay, great. Not one. 
in 40 years. Pastors don't have people come and be like, you know, I just really think I'm greedy. Why is that? Why is that? This is the effect, the blinding effect of materialism. You, part of it is, you know why? Is because you know somebody who spends more than you do. Everybody has somebody that they know that spends more than they do. Right? You, you say, well, I'm not greedy. <laughs> She's greedy. Do you see where she got her haircut? Man, that's greed. Right? We, we are able to look at other people and say, oh, well, they're greedy. Not, not me. Because everybody knows somebody that spends more than you do. Don't look at your spouse. I don't want to do counseling just yet this morning. We all know someone who spends more. And your automatic thought is, well, they're, they're the greedy ones. No one ever thinks that they're rich because there's always someone that has more money. Let me put it to you this way. If you're sitting there this morning and saying, you know, this isn't really a problem of mine. That's a really bad sign. Your eyes may be darkened. If you're younger in this room, if you're younger than 20, and you're thinking, I don't know if I need to hear a sermon on, like, giving, on generosity. Look, if, if you're setting up for yourself right now, and you're not giving right now, what makes you think that later in life it, you're going to be able, aware of what's going on in your finances later? It's like saying this. It's like saying, well, there was no mean girls in my high school. Oh, there's no mean girls in your high school. Interesting. What is, why does Jesus talk about money all the time? He's always saying, give your money away. He's always saying, don't spend money on yourself because your eyes darken to the reality that something's trying to steal the throne of your heart. You guys know that we're in a, a, a culture that subtly is trying to shape you and shift you towards affections, towards something that's just so temporal. In 2014, I took a, a trip of uh, a bunch of high school students, took like 100 high school students to El Salvador, to San Salvador, El Salvador. And we had a great week sharing the gospel, and uh, we got to Friday, and I was like, all right, we made it all safe. It was really wonderful. And on Friday, we do like a big beach trip. We do like a celebration day at the beach for a job well done. And I guess when one of, we parked, one of the students uh, got out of the bus and ran straight to the water and to the ocean. And I, I, we didn't see him get up there. Uh, I'm safe to take a mission trip with, but I didn't see him get up there. He got up there, and uh, he, he, we walked up. And as we walked up, I set my bags down, put my hands on my head, and said, man, this, I'm so glad to be here. And I look out into the water, and like, man, 125 yards, like way, way out there as this, this boy, like kind of waving his arms, like swimming. What, was hap what happened is he got caught in a riptide, if you know a, what a riptide is. Uh, now, if you know anything about riptides, you don't, riptides, you don't swim against them, right? You don't swim against a riptide. You swim parallel to the shore. And in order to do that, you have to have a reference point on shore to be able to see where you're going. Because if you swim against it, you'll get exhausted, and that's where terrible things happen. But he had to swim parallel. And so this young man's just swimming his heart out, and I wave him down, and I say, this way, swim this way. And he's like, what? I go, swim this way. And so I walk with him along the shore as he, as he swims this way out of the riptide. He comes up to the shore on his hands and he just goes, oh, oh, I really had to pee. And that was his first words. And I was just livid. I was so mad. I was so mad. I was like, your dad is going to kill me. Um, and so I, he had to have this reference point on the shore to get out of where he was going. But 
what had happened was, I asked him, I said, what are you doing? Why would you do that? And he said, look, I just went like waist deep in the water and I sat there and something pulled me out. I don't know what it was, but it felt like something physically pulled me out. And I said, no, that's a, that's a riptide. That's something that's a, a water undercurrent that's, sh- that's pulling you out. I don't think I have to tell you this, but in the culture you're in right now, there's so many things that are trying to sweep you out from under your feet and push you offshore. A culture of death and destruction and destruction is only going to subtly pull you, and it might not be in one fell swoop. It might be in a slow, methodical shaping. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving you bearings to lift your eyes up off the water that we're treading in and look on shore and have someone walk out of the riptide with. He's lifting your chin to the things that matter, mainly to the person that's going to guide you out of it. So you might ask yourself, you know, how, okay, if I'm so blind to this and I, I'm really unaware, how do I know that I'm being generous? How do I know that my life is reflecting generosity? How do I know if I'm res- taking in light and my body is moving forward? It's a really good question. How do I know if I'm being generous? Have you ever asked that? How do you know? I mean, how could you know? You know, unlike some areas or sin, greed has no external reference. There's no numbers. Like, you give $100, you're really ungenerous. $101, oh my gosh, you're so generous. There's no reference point. There's nothing to say, oh, I've now reached generosity. There's no reference. There's no level of gift that's generous, which is why this isn't a numbers game. This is a heart thing. Greed versus generosity is a matter of your heart. Are you operating off your convictions? Luke 21 shows that Claire and I, we take a trip to Israel. And uh, uh, last time we went there, I bought Claire a little widow's mite. She's wearing it. You guys can check it out. She's got a a widow's mite on, right? And in Luke 21, Jesus says that the widow's mite, the smallest unit of measurement, of monetary measurement, was an act of radical generosity, But a huge gift could be a ploy to hide your greediness. There's no no number here. People say, well, people might ask me, like, okay, what about the 10% thing? Isn't that a, the 10% thing? Well, when Abraham and Melchizedek set that up, that that was a, that was a sacrifice, an offering of sacrifice. The 10% to Melchizedek was an offering that made them depend more. Jesus actually says in Luke 12 to the Pharisees that who are following the law, they're getting 10% every time. He says, this isn't a sacrifice for you. You're not feeling this sacrifice unto the Lord. You're not, this isn't a sacrifice for you, and therefore this is not worshipful. You're not feeling it. And so the problem for us is we're so unaware because there's no target or, or stick to measure or base on, but the what we're trying to explain to you in this text is that it's a voice that's calling you. It's a person that you get to know that's telling you and helping you navigate where generosity lands in your own life. This is not about your checkbook. It's about your heart. The only way that you know if you're generous or greedy is not, how, not by how much you, you're giving. It's about your motivations and your attitude towards your money. It's about your attitude towards money. That's when light can be let in. That's when your heart has a chance to act out of your body and let generosity be the path that's illuminated for your life. 
Is there joy? Is there margin to give? Keller has a great definition of biblical generosity. It says, someone who has such a joyous, proactive, aggressive desire to seek out ways to give your money away that you do it and do it and do it in such a way that it makes a measurable difference on the way that you, leave, you, the way that you live economically. When you say, Jesus, I'm in, let's go. He wants to transform every part of your life and the part of your life that is your finances. He's going to say, does your life have margin for generosity? In your bank account, in your statements, is there margin to just be aggressive, assertive, proactive, joyful about what you give away? And there's a tension there. There's like a tension there, and that's a really good tension. When Claire and I sit at the kitchen table and it's like, God called us to do this, we're like, oh, man, cheerful giver. You know, like, what, what do you do? Well, it's good to feel that tension and fully feel it and say, you know what? This is a sacrifice unto the Lord, but he called us to bless that person. So let us with joy and, aggre- and aggressively and proactively step into that thing that he's calling to us from the shore. Does that make sense? Are you following me? Okay, great. The Christian financial life is one that's lived with margin. And if there's no margin in your life to bless the mess out of people, then, then maybe we need to listen to the voice that's calling you on the shore. Which is why he jumps in clearly at the beginning and says this is a heart issue and it concludes that small section, which is clarifying for you uh, who, who is the master of your heart. Money is trying to shape your perception to be seen as supreme, which is why it's a good tool, but a bad God. Last one, last kind of segment. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Your heart can only be in one place. There's only one place that can, that can take your allegiance, especially when it's you know, pitted against materialism and greed. Uh, you'll all, you're always going to want to prefer one over the other. The word for money here is actually mammon. Mammon. Mammon is a word that represents all the material things that you want or possess. And again, Jesus is going straight to the heart. And what he does here is br- brilliant. This is brilliant. By pointing all this back to the master. He's, he's, he's defining two types of relationships, right? He's, def- he's, def- he's saying this is what money is and can be, but this is who the, who the master is and who you know him to be. Look, if, look right at me. If you only hear one thing, God loves you. Money does not love you, right? We look to the things of this world to provide us the satisfaction that only he provides. We're looking to, for money to give us that sense of security or, or status. That's why he talks about clothes. Clothes gives you status. Like, I have status now. We're looking to money to, to be that for us. It's a really terrible mistress. Money's a terrible mistress, when you look to money to give you satisfaction and joy and fulfillment, then you leave empty-handed. It's a, it's a mistress who lures you in, makes you think that she loves you in order to dote on her more, and then she leaves you empty-handed and the cycle repeats itself. Like a bad relationship, money takes you on a date to a restaurant that they had a group on to. Not that I've ever done that before. 
that date forgets their wallet and makes you pay the balance and they take the tip that you left on the table. That's the kind of relationship that money can have. And so how are you tied to the master of either money or the Lord? And this is the brilliance of Jesus. He leads us to the master who sacrificed so much for you and showed you with his actions that he loves you. If you if you're in this room and you know you'll sacrifice for the sake of money, but you won't sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, then we can't deceive ourselves. Money is our God. Paul Tripp wrote a book called uh, Redeeming Money. It's, it's excellent. And it says this, Address, addressing the issue of money and understanding money problems doesn't begin with money and budget information. It begins with surrender. You and I will never use money the way it's meant to be used and will never break disastrous money habits if we're not living in light of the fact that life is not about us. The world wasn't first created to be a vehicle for realizing your personal definition of happiness. I'm going to read that one more time for me. The world wasn't first created to be a vehicle for realizing your personal definition of happiness. Money wasn't created for the sole purpose of bringing into our lives all the things we crave. Money will bless you or it will curse you. It'll be the tool in the hands of a God of grace or it'll be a doorway into bad and dangerous things. But God is a kind master. And I love that he pits the two against each other because it, it forces you to focus on who's the other master? Who's the other person in the story? I want to know his character. If I'm coming up empty-handed to my mistress of money, then what does the other master have to offer me that is so beautiful? You realize that God treasures you, right? If God's got something locked away in a little box and he, cons he considers it precious, that's you. He considers you so precious that he would send his son to die for you. That's sacrifice. What does God treasure most? You can answer that one. What's God treasure most? You. I want you to say me emphatically because I need you to, I really need, what does God treasure most? He treasures you. He treasures you. He showed you with the blood of his son. And then when you realize that everything came from the master, you're going to sit in a posture and say, I own nothing. You can stand and say, I worked hard for that. Absolutely. You totally work hard. Some of you guys work your tails off. Awesome. You did work hard for that, but it is, it, is it yours? No. Everything is a good and gracious gift from God above. You don't own any assets. <laughs> the more and more you think you do, the more and more the undertow is going to take you out. Money doesn't love you like that. It takes a compulsive ambition and slowly takes your life over till you're drifting into a Monopoly game. I looked at the old instructions of Monopoly, by the way, for this sermon. It's, it's ruthless. <laughs> you guys Monopoly players out there? Your pastor says burn it. Just kidding. No, you're fine. Right? The old, the old instructions of Monopoly literally says, you know what you should do? You should create a housing shortage in the game. I can't imagine playing with my four-year-old be like, ha, housing so shortage, all your money's mine. I mean, how brutal is that? It's the game of Monopoly. There's no room in the game of Monopoly to say, hey, Missy, here's $100. I feel, I feel bad for you because you don't have any. How many of you guys have actually played with your parents? They're like, oh, you can have some money. Yeah. Look, 
money is endeavoring to evoke worship in your life, to embody itself, to take the mantle, the throne, as, as the Godhead in your life. In 1993, uh, some of you guys know the film Schindler's, Schindler's, Schindler's List uh, had a famous ending scene where it perfectly portrays a heart seized by the gospel and by giving away lavishly and, and being generous. Uh, Oscar uh, walks out into the middle of a crowd of 1,200 people whom he saved, and then he looks down at his car and he says, why did I buy this car? This could have been 10 people. And he looks at his pen, he takes it off, he said, this is gold. Uh, this could have been three people. I spent all this money. Why did I spend so much money, is what he says. For those of us in Christ's family, there's no condemnation. There's no finger wagging. God's not saying you should have, you could have. But he is saying we can. We can do so much with what you've been given. Your gifts, talents, abilities, your time, connections, resources. We can do so much. He's not saying you should have. He's saying we can. We can do the unimaginable for Fort Worth. He's quoted saying, when I saw, when I saw that those people were being destroyed, I had to help them. I had no choice. A heart captured by Jesus will lever leverage its entire life for the good and sake of other people in our lives. To settle for anything less than that is to build your kingdom and your power and your glory and put money on the Godhead of your, of your life. Which is why next week he talks about anxiety. Because when we put this on the throne, it causes us to navel gaze and just be so worried and anxious and I'm excited for us to go through that. But my question to you is how far have you drifted offshore? Very simply put, some of you, it wasn't your, your, your fault. It's not here saying like, you're wrong. It's, it was, you just were never taught. Financial literacy is at an all-time low. You're, maybe you just were never taught how to do these things. And some of you in this room have this, if, if statistics are correct, you guys are all sitting under an unbearable weight of, of debt. And you don't know what to do. And you're way offshore. And you're like, how do I be generous in the midst of just, feels like imprisonment. One of our congregants here at Fort Bible Church was telling me, how he chose a financial advisor who was a believer. And one of the benefits, one of the perks of that is that he has someone he can come to that knows his finances and can see where the Hansel and Gretel trail leads to. And some of you guys are like, that's a cult. If I've ever heard of a cult, that's a cult. No. Man, there's beauty in community of saying, look, Look at where I'm going. Look at what I'm, I'm spending on. Is this, is this spending on things that are up there or, or down here? There's beauty in that. Some of you, that makes you so uncomfortable. I understand, but recognize that there is a beauty of doing this in community. And then two, if you're sitting in this room and you're like, I'm, I'm so lost when it comes to this, there are so many people at Fort Bible Church that want to help you. And after this service, we're going to have a little we have a little prayer room right here. It's, a, it's the music room, so you can play the xylophone while we pray. Um, but there's a prayer room in there, and we would just love to hear you out. 
it is so freeing to just say, look, this is where I'm struggling. This is where I've gotten offshore. And this is what I think my life is leading towards. Would you just pray for me? You don't have to give us specifics, but let us pray for you and walk with you and love you. Money's a, a good tool. It can be a great tool, but it's a really bad God. What's on the throne of your heart today? Let me pray. God, thank you for this word that is a stern warning, a beautiful revealing of not only ourselves, but our great master who gave all for us. If we were to look at the ultimate relationship, just for a second, Father, would my friends in this room and would I realize that Jesus came to be a relationship that doesn't rob us but gives to us, that captures our heart because we came to you in poverty? Would we realize that the relationship with Jesus is one that opens our eyes and shows us a path to generosity? And we, we realize that a relationship to Jesus puts us under a master who provides all and gives all and allows us to embody generosity. I pray against right now any sort of condemnation, any sort of guilt, any sort of finger wagging or you should have. And I pray that you would be the voice of truth that says, pursue me. Pursue him for Bible Church. And listen to that voice call you to a life worth living. In Jesus' name, amen.